I've always thought for a church with so many Caribbean people in it, we sure don't dance and clap enough. Now, I don't know why you're, oh, now you're clapping. Now I know what the secret is. Congo drums. Even the white boys were up here dancing, right, Big D? <laughs> I mean, you saw D? Did you guys see D moving? It was subdued. It was kind of like a little foot tap, but that's something. Man, I felt the rhythm. I was moving. and yeah. I don't clap. You know, I don't have rhythm, but man, it was great, guys. Thank you so much. Johan, you are, multi, you are multi-talented. So are you, Tara. You guys can do anything. Except root for the right sports teams, Tara. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, Tara is an atheist. I mean, gator. Whatever. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we come this morning to ask you this question as a church, and that is, why do we love you? Lord, it's possible for us to love you for the wrong reasons. It's possible to love our loved ones for the wrong reasons. It's possible to call infatuation love possible to call our salvation a salvation built on your power and not on your authority. Lord, I pray this morning that you would begin to move this church, every individual, towards you, Lord Jesus, and you alone. Lord, it's easy to get caught up in things and to be impressed by your power and to be impressed with your ability to heal and to grant gifts and to miss that you, Lord Jesus, are our portion. Lord, if the streets weren't gold in heaven, would we still be satisfied in you alone? Lord, this is a mystery A mystery of how to be content when we have nothing and when we have everything. And the answer to that mystery is that you, Lord Jesus, strengthen us. Lord, move our hearts to desire you this morning. And not just what you can do for us. Jesus, don't let us desire to be famous. Don't let us desire to to be with part of the crowd, but let us desire to be in you and let that be enough for us. Jesus, you are our cornerstone. Lord, let us look to the cross this morning and find healing. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, those who were sick would be healed. Lord, let us look to the Son who was lifted up on the cross and be healed. Let us see that Jesus is enough this morning, that just Jesus is enough. Whether you give us a hundred more years on this planet, 
whether you give us fortune and fame and riches beyond our wildest imagination, let you, Lord Jesus, be enough. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Matthew 4, 23. We're going to read through 4, 23 to 25, and then 5, 1, all the way up to 5, 1 in Matthew. There was a startling statistic back in 2014. It startled me because, um, it should startle all of us, because we live uh, in a city where it seems to be the case that Jesus is not a very popular person. (laughs) We live in a world where Jesus has never really been a popular person. And this is a startling statistic that Gallup uh, Gallup poll did. Uh, Frank Newport, who's the Gallup editor-in-chief, found in 2014 that 76% of Americans identify themselves as members of the Christian faith. 76% of Americans identify themselves as members of the Christian faith. Now, some of us might say, well, praise God, like, that's great news. And boy, that 24% is sure wreaking havoc in our country. And if you think long enough, you're going to start asking this question, what in the world are the 76% doing? Is it possible that God's people could be doing nothing? I mean, yes, that's possible. I think there's a better answer. I think the better answer is that 76% of the people don't understand what it is to be a Christian. Another poll taken by Pew researchers They found that 53% of Americans answered yes. 53% of Americans answered yes when asked if religion is important to their lives. Now, 76% identify themselves as Christian, and 53% say it's important. But less than that, 40% of men go to church at least once a month. Now, how is it possible that 76% of Americans can be Christians and not live like it? You know, this isn't new. It was the same situation that occurred in Jesus' day. Such a phenomenon undoubtedly prompted James, the brother of Jesus, to ask this question, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? The the question that the Gallup poll editor said or, or was presented to them was, Do you identify yourself with the Christian faith? And so this has been going on from from the earliest days of the church. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Jesus warned us to inspect the fruit of those who said they were his disciples But this commonplace practice of examining people's profession of faith in light of the way they live is taboo today. One popular pastor said, I I don't like to preach about sin. I let other pastors do that. How about us? What about our relationship with Jesus proves to us that we're his disciples? 
I mean, do we regularly ask ourselves the question that James asked, which is what good is it if I come to church on Sunday, give my tithe, read my Bible, if I don't have works? What good is this thing I claim to be? What, is this, what good is this faith I claim to have in Jesus if I don't ever bear any fruit that I'm that type of tree? What about us? What good works adorn your profession of faith so that you might know that you have come to know him? This question is of essential importance for the life of every believer. How do I know that I have come to know him? And Jesus gives us no exceptions at this point. He says in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds the, the righteousness of the most viewed the most righteous people of the day, quote-unquote, the people who were the most moral. It, it would be like saying, coming to you today and saying, unless you were more righteous than the Pope, and nobody thinks they're more righteous than the Pope, unless you're more righteous than your pastor, unless you're more righteous than, the, than, than Mother Teresa, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. For some of you, that, that sounds daunting. How, how can any of us inherit the kingdom of heaven if our righteousness has to surpass that of the most righteous people? But this question then brings me to ask you a question this morning, our main question for the day, and it's this. Are you a disciple of Jesus or just a member of the crowd? Are you a disciple of Jesus or just a member of the crowd? What might you be replacing this morning for your Christianity? Is, is it that you think that your simple belief that there is a God makes you a Christian? Many people say that. You ask such and such, are you a Christian? Yes. Why? Well, because I believe in God. But the demons do that much. So, so if all you do is believe in God, now you're just as good as a demon. Uh, Satan certainly believes in God. He has certainly had an intellectual assent to say, of course there's a God. Many people believe in a God. But what does that have to do with discipleship after Jesus? Jesus wants you to follow him. And the question then this morning is, are you following him for the right reasons? Look at our verse this morning in Matthew 4, 23 through 5, 1. This passage comes right before Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. It says this, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom 
and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is a huge range this is miles, and if you, if you add up all the miles in every direction, it's hundreds of miles that people came to see Jesus. We don't even like to drive 60 miles to West Palm Beach. Imagine walking or imagine going by camel. And people were coming from everywhere to be a part of the crowd. And it says that seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. The first point I want to make this morning is that we have to know Jesus in the right way. We have to know Jesus in the right way. If, if any pastor were ever coming down to Miami and asked me, What's the, what, what advice would you give me for the audiences that I'm going to be preaching to and, and about how to do evangelism, the one thing I would tell that person is, you have got to stress that there is a right way to know Jesus and a wrong way to know Jesus. This much is taught in Scripture. And I'm going to show you that today. But we have to know Jesus in the right way. There are so many things that we're told today about Jesus, but only Jesus gets to define who Jesus is. And think about the world we live in where we, we know everything about everyone because we have social media and someone wrote a 140 character long tweet about someone and we have made up our mind now we know them. Think about how many people said that they were hurt by a Christian and now have rejected everything about Jesus just because they were hurt by one Christian. Think about how many different examples around this very neighborhood of churches that have the name of Jesus on it that may not be preaching Jesus truly. We slap a Jesus fish called the ichthus on something and we go out and buy it and it may be complete heresy. It may be complete falsehood. We have to make sure that we know Jesus the right way. It's that important. It is so important that the Lord Jesus gave to the church apostles and those apostles gave elders to the church. And the job of these shepherd elders was to protect the sheep from wolves who would come in and devour them. They would use all of the right vocabulary and they would not use the right dictionary. They'd say words like Jesus and salvation and blessed and use all of the Christian vocab. And then if you press them on it to define the terms, they can't define them. Or when they do define them, they're not the way Jesus defines himself. So the first point I want to make this morning is that we have to know Jesus in the right way. There are three things that come up. It says that Jesus went around teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. 
Jesus teaches, he proclaims, and he heals. Perhaps there's no better place to start this message this morning than with a brief description of the Lord's ministry. Many of us love the Christmas season and we swoon over the baby Jesus. And we love to go to to the Fort Lauderdale Christmas pageant and we love to see the little girl or the little boy just depending on who's the cutest in the church at the time. And they walk out to the stage and it gets somber and they darken all the lights and just one spotlight comes on the child and he sings, Happy birthday, Jesus. And oh, and everybody, oh. And we love Jesus as a baby. He's so meek and mild. He's a swaddling baby. What's sweeter than a baby? Says the person who's had two babies recently. But what's sweeter than a baby? They're so sweet. How else could you put up with all of the you know, stuff that comes out of them if they weren't sweet. And we love, we love the baby. But do you know that only two, only two of the four Gospels spend any time on a baby? And that's only to prove that the man they were going to preach about fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament. And then even those passages are small. The bulk of Jesus' Gospels are about the man's ministry. And we celebrate two seasons in this country, in the West. We celebrate celebrate the season of of his birth and the season of his death. And we don't want to take any time to ever sit there and ask, what did the man teach? Why? Because his teachings were hard. But Jesus taught. The baby Jesus is docile, but the man Christ Jesus is challenging. Take up your cross. Love your neighbor. Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive those who sin against you. And there are many, many more commands that the man makes that we wish he would have otherwise remained in a manger. Just stay in the manger. But the man commands that we give our allegiance to him. But Jesus is not only our Lord. He is three things, a teacher, a proclaimer, and a healer. First, Jesus is a teacher. The Messiah could have been anything. He could have been a political leader, and certainly the Jews of the day expected him to be. They expected a conqueror to come. He could have been a a politician, He could have been concerned with with social problems of the day. He he could have been a philosopher, but no, Jesus was a teacher. The passage says that he went around to the synagogues to teach. Jesus was a teacher. In the conclusion on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, whoever hears these words of mine and does them will inherit the kingdom of God. Make no mistake, as a teacher of eight years and every teacher that's here this morning, the most frustrating thing for any teacher is this, that you can teach and teach and teach until you are red in the face, and when the children don't do, there is nothing more disappointing than that. Teach and teach and teach, and I can tell you there is nothing more rewarding than when they do. 
Jesus ends the greatest sermon by saying, he who hears my words and does them shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is a teacher, and he's looking for his students to not just hear him. He will know that you hear him by how you do what he asked you to do. But Jesus is also a proclaimer, and that's different than a teacher. The proclaimer is quite different, as a matter of fact. The proclaimer warns. The proclaimer testifies. He does not defend his claims. He does not argue about his claims. He simply states them, and that's it. When a proclaimer comes, we don't have time to stop and debate. The proclaimer is in a more urgent situation than a teacher. A teacher gives you time, but a proclaimer says, do it now. When Paul Revere rode out and he proclaimed the British were coming, would it have been a good idea to come out and say, now wait a second here, Paul Revere. I, tell me about this. How do you know that the British are coming? How do you really know this now? Let's, uh, is it even feasible that the British could get here by the time you say they're going to get here? He doesn't care whether or not it bothers you about the message you're hearing. And whether you believe it or not, the British are coming, baby, and they're coming for you. And he doesn't care. He'll ride on to the next. But Jesus came and proclaimed the message of the kingdom of heaven. And those who received it received him, and those who didn't, didn't receive him. It's a simple proclamation. So we have to know the right things about Jesus. We have to know that Jesus was a teacher who expected to be followed, and he was a proclaimer who expected you to act urgently to what he was preaching. Listen to this one story about Jesus as he was proclaiming to the Pharisees. He says in, in John, it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. This is John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of this life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus is in no mood to debate. This is urgent. And I'm going to tell you right now, every time you hear the gospel, it's urgent. And think about how, how blessed you are if you get to come in and hear the gospel every week and get to walk out of here and come back the next week alive having rejected the gospel and we preach it again. In fact, Jesus even tells them when they don't receive the gospel, leave and wipe the dust off of your sandals and go on to the next. And yet we preach and preach week after week, and I know that there are people who need to be saved and still will not receive. Woe to you. Woe to you who reject the proclamations of Jesus. Jesus answered the Pharisees, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not alone I who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Jesus is saying, you want to get into a debate about whether or not I'm the Son of Man or whether or not I really am who I am? 
I'm not going to do that. My testimony is based on the authority of God himself. I am God the Son, and the Father testifies to me. Jesus says, even if I say it by myself, that's enough. But just to let you know how condemned you are, Pharisees, the Father also testifies to me. And you don't know him. In your law, it is written, says Jesus, that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. How does the Father bear witness about him? The Father testified on the day of his baptism, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father testifies through the miraculous works that Jesus is doing. This is why people are coming from everywhere. They said to him, therefore, Jesus said to them, he said to him, therefore, where is your father? Said the Pharisees. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Jesus proclaims the truth. Take it or leave it. Some people are saying, you know, I'm, I'm waiting, I'm searching. And Jesus is saying, I am who I am. That's enough. That's enough. There was a man who, who had much money and he had many comforts here on earth and he walked day by day past a poor man named Lazarus. And when the two died, the poor man was in Abraham's bosom in heaven. It says that the rich man was who we don't even know his name. Think about that. All of the money you have and we don't even know your name. But the poor man Lazarus is known because he knows Jesus. He's in Abraham's bosom, and that, that rich man says, send someone back from the dead to my family, then they'll believe. And the response is, let them listen to the proclamation of Moses and the prophets. If they don't listen to the proclamation of the gospel, if you don't listen to the proclamation of the gospel and heed the words of the Bible... It doesn't matter what is going to happen in your life. It doesn't matter if someone from the dead comes back. You have made up your mind in your heart. I will reject the proclamation of God. But Jesus is also healer. And this is the focus of our text today. Jesus is healer. It says that Jesus healed every disease and every affliction among the people. We don't, we don't know what that means. We just know it was every one. Think about the fact that they're writing 2,000 years ago and they do not have Gray's Anatomy. Not the show, but the book. They don't understand all of the physical ailments in the body the way we understand it. So it says that Jesus just healed everything that was coming to him. Everything. And instantaneously. We prayed for Shalincia last week. We prayed that, that, that the Lord would, would heal her, and he did. She's doing, she's doing well today. But it was amazing when they explained to me the procedure and the way that Western medicine could, could heal someone. And Jesus was doing amazing things in those days without Western medicine. And there are places around the world today that don't have Western medicine. And the simplest thing that you and I take for granted that we can walk down the aisle at a CVS and get a NyQuil on that will be cured in two weeks will kill people around the world. That's today. But then Jesus healed everyone. 
There's no limit to what people saw Jesus heal. And his power is undeniable. This is why the great crowds from all over Palestine, Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond the Jordan, hundreds of miles from every direction of people coming out to see Jesus. He is so famous for his healings. My second point this morning is not only first that we need to know truly who Jesus is and know Jesus for the right reasons, but we need to love Jesus for the right reasons. When I read through this text this week, the word fame jumped off the pages at me. The word fame. I thought to myself how fame, a word like fame, seems to be so beyond Jesus' integrity. It says in our passage today, and his fame spread. He was, his fame, he was famous. And that the people were coming with every sort of disease. They didn't come to hear, they came to be healed. They came for the power. Jesus didn't want fame, though. Paul made, uh, made a statement in, in Galatians. If I wanted to be famous, he said, I wouldn't be a, I wouldn't be a follower of Jesus. If I wanted to be famous, the last thing I would do is follow Jesus. If I wanted to be famous, I'd follow the ways of men. Think about today. The one thing that'll put your career on, hot, on, on the hot seat is mentioned that you are in any way a Christian. That didn't make you famous. You, you know how to get famous in this world? Come out of the closet. Share with the world that, that you are going, to, you are going to, to embrace a transgender lifestyle or that you're homosexual and you are going to skyrocket to the top. But say to the world that you're a follower of Jesus and nobody wants to touch you. And people were coming to Jesus because he was famous. This man is famous. He can do. Look what he can do. I thought about athletes this week. And their entourages. You see all these people who follow athletes and their entourage? And all of them have the same question in the back of their mind. They all have the same paranoia. Do they really love me or do they love what I can do for them? LeBron James. I mean, are you kidding me? It's hard to find one good friend in this world. And LeBron James got 30, 40 people following him wherever he goes. Sycophants! Ready to do anything he asked of them. Why? Because they truly love the man? And I'm sure he's a nice enough guy. But come on. They love him for his fame, and they love him for what he can do for him. He's like a genie to them. And sometimes Jesus becomes a genie to us. We think that this equals this. Oh, I prayed it. Ah, two more wishes. I wish for more wishes. All you have to do is sit around and listen to prayer requests. How often do we say, you know, I just want to pray today that souls get saved. That's something I desire. And I'm guilty of it. I'm not picking on you. I'm guilty of it too. And certainly there is no condemnation for these people for wanting to be healed. 
Certainly we all want to be healed, but the, the question that I want to ask you this morning is why are you coming to Jesus? Is it just to be healed? Turn in your Bibles to Luke 17, 11. Luke 17, 11. And we're going to read through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he, that is Jesus, entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So they lifted up his voices. They were yelling. They were pleading. Jesus, Master, they're using all of the right Vocabulary. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. As they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Now think about this. It could be us who are the ones who are part. We're part of the church. We've always been a part of the church. And here comes a foreigner. And sometimes the foreigners and the people who are lost, most of the time have a better understanding of the grace of God and what he's done for them because they see how unworthy they were for salvation. And yet we who grew up in the church we just run away happy that we've been cleansed, happy that we got the promotion, happy that we've been healed, and never stop to say, thank you, Jesus. You didn't have to do it. We knew you were able, but you didn't have to do it. You didn't have to give me the promotion. You didn't have to give me the the healing. You didn't have to give me the job. You didn't have to have to get me off of drugs. You, you didn't have to do it, but, but thank you. It says that the man came and nine others, both healed, nine others ran away. And Jesus says, we're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and to give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. You see, the other men were cleansed. They got their reward in this life. They were cleansed. Only to die again. But the one who praised and worshipped Jesus the right way, who followed Jesus for the right reasons, who knew the right things about Jesus, his what? Faith made him well. You see, men can love Jesus for his power, 
and despise him for his authority. It is a scary thought to think that we could be so close to Jesus, so close to Jesus, and so far away. We could even call him master. We could even call him Jesus. We could know his name and sing the songs and be so far away. Because Monday through Saturday is the world's days. And we'll maybe give Jesus a Sunday. We might give him a Wednesday night. Probably not. Men can love Jesus for his power and despise him for his authority. We can know him, we can admire him, we can like him, we can want to be like him. Gandhi wanted to be like Jesus, but never accepted him as Savior. He thought the Sermon on the Mount was the greatest sermon ever preached, and he followed him, and he, wanted, he admired Jesus, but he never accepted him as Savior. So what if you admire Jesus? And you have not entrusted your life to him. So what? But this is the goal that I want for this church. I want us to desire to have Jesus as our Lord. And to say, it is good enough that I am simply under your authority. Your authority is your gift to me. You, Jesus, have the right to tell me how I should respond when I'm angry with my brother. Even though I don't want to do it, you, Jesus, have the authority to tell me how to respond when I'm angry at my brother. You, Jesus, have the authority, and it is good, and I thank you that you love me, that you would tell me that, that adultery begins in the heart. And you, Jesus, in my private time when I'm by myself, I'm, I'm just going to be satisfied in you and satisfied that you are the authority and that you've cared for me enough that you would teach me, that you would teach me that, that I can ruin my life, that, that all of these evil things that I, that I do in my life, that they begin way back down in my heart. That's good enough. My desire is that this church will love Jesus for his authority. And that the end of your Christian faith, that is the goal, not the end as in the ending, but the goal as in this is enough, is that Jesus is Lord in the, in the midst of suffering and in the midst of abundance. It doesn't matter. Jesus is Lord. Do you believe that God knows what's best for you? Some of you say yes, but if you do, then why are you rejecting his commands? This sermon is the beginning sermon to the Sermon on the Mount. I am going to preach through the next couple months the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to remember this question as we read these difficult, difficult passages. If you believe Jesus knows what's best for you and loves you and wants what's best for you, why do we rebel against his teaching?
If 76% of Americans claim to be disciples of Jesus, why doesn't this country look different? It's because our sinful nature always tends to cry out, Lord, Lord, when we desire power for ourselves, the power to cast out demons and do mighty works in His name so that we might get the glory and not to just cry out, Lord, You are enough. We want the power, but we don't want Jesus to have authority in our lives. Are you a part of the crowd or are you a disciple? My question this morning is, what do you want from Jesus? What, what would disappoint you in this life? If you didn't get it in this life, would you be disappointed with Jesus? What is that? And ask yourself in your private time, if I didn't get this or if this thing happened to me, it would utterly disappoint me to the point where I would reject God. What is that thing? And if you answer that truthfully, you might have found your idol. And I want to tell you that is a great exercise. Ask yourself, do I love something today more than Jesus? Because if you do and you recognize that you have a problem and you recognize that you're running after false gods and you're running after fame and you're running after success and you're running after the American dream and you realize that if all of that was taken away from you, you would still be okay because you have mastered, as Paul said, the mystery of being content that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. If you can say that to the glory of God, Jesus is Lord. You say, this is uncomfortable. Good. Because this is the beginning of discipleship. What do you want from Jesus? What can Jesus do for you that would make you happy? Would it be healing or peace? A clear conscience? Success? Money? The American dream? Jesus says, no, I can give you the kingdom of heaven. Mercy. I can let you see God. Or to even be called sons of God. Or to receive the reward of the kingdom of heaven. Paul says of that reward, it is inexpressible and incomparable with all of the suffering of this world. Think about the worst suffering you will ever endure in this world. And Paul says, the two between the riches of his glories, of the glories of Christ, between the two, what will happen then and what is happening now, I can't even compare them. They're incomparable. The glories of Christ are far more greater than any suffering you'll experience in this life. Jesus says, I can give them to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And these things, the Beatitudes, the kingdom of heaven, mercy, sons of God, those things will be added unto you.
You see, many come to Jesus now to receive temporary gifts, but few desire the eternal gifts of heaven, where moths and rust destroy and thieves steal. But Jesus encouraged us and proclaimed, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where nothing and no one will ever destroy them. Nothing and no one will ever destroy what God has given you. That car that you're working so hard for is going to be obsolete in a year. It's going to break down. Thieves are going to steal it. Why live for the passing pleasures of this life when you can have the kingdom of heaven? You can have the greatest gift of all. Jesus is Lord. And no one can take it away. Not even in death can you lose Jesus. In fact, the Bible tells us that it's in death that Jesus is most present. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Heights nor depths, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And you can have that. So this is the challenge of these messages that we're going to be beginning and in the coming weeks. We're going to learn how we can store up for ourselves treasures in heaven as we study the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. I want to leave you with the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Turn there with me if you would. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. I want you to remember this verse. If you have a highlighter or a pen, I want you to underline it. I want you to highlight it. And I want you to remember this verse as we study these sermons. When I preach on anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation, and love for your enemies. And when we teach you how to pray and how to fast, I want you to remember this verse. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Jesus is teacher, and here's what he teaches us. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. If there is no difference in your life since you've come to know Jesus, if you're still addicted to porn, if you're still addicted to alcohol, if you're still running away from Jesus and you came and you made a pledge, if there's no difference in your life, listen to what Jesus is saying. You have not built your house on me. Not everyone, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The wrath of God is coming. The question is, will you be built on the rock? 
But then he says this, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. When, when we read that anger and lust begin in the heart, and when we read that Jesus says, it's better that you do this than that, than that your whole body, that better that you, be, you pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, than that you thrown your whole body into hell. When we read these hard teachings, remember what Jesus says, the one who does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. I want us as a church to ask this question. Are we members of the crowd or disciples of Jesus? Let's pray.